Grab your popcorn and silence those cell phones because the show is about to start. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Rick Blaine is an award-winning film critic featured on TheBigScreen.net.org and has been highlighted on over 75 unreleased independent film posters in less than 12 different countries. Nick Brown. He's been the high school projectionist for the AV Club for over nine semesters and can be heard nightly at the theater talking loudly in the row behind you about the film being screened. And now, they're joining forces. Ladies and gentlemen, Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Movie time! Time to talk what is up on the big screen, which are beautiful new screens, by the way, at the Bemidji Theater. If you get a chance, swing by and check them out, because we are Rick and Nick Talk Flicks, sponsored by the Bemidji Theater. He's Hoove. And your date. <laughs> and he's Dave. I, Rick, yeah. Rick and Nick are too busy to come in and do their work, so we got them covered. I didn't realize we were introducing each other. I didn't either. It's just one of those hot potato <laughs> random things. Just that, go with it, man. Just go with good. it. So, by the way, Dave, did you get a chance to go to the theater since I the new screen's open? have. All right. What did you think? We, and, and the theater rooms, of course. Oh, they're marvelous. So, of course, those of you that have been uh, playing the home game in, in the Bemidji area, they've kind of been tearing apart the auditoriums at the Bemidji Theater and really upgrading them. New screen, new sound systems, and it's the most obvious thing are the seating. I mean, it's those Buttmaster 5,000 chairs. I mean, they're just amazing. But the funny thing is, there's a little button, and you press that, and the legs will go out, and then, of course, it'll recline back. But when you get leather rubbing on leather, it's a big, like, in unison fart noise, the leather fart. So that's funny when everybody's chair is doing that simultaneously. But that being not the case, they got the first half done and open. Now they're tearing apart the other half. They should be done by Memorial Weekend, so when the summer movies really get going, to say nothing of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, which opens this weekend, this is going to be fun. And it's going to be a marvelous theater-going experience like you probably haven't done anywhere nearby anyway. Yeah, so make sure you check out the Bemidji Theater. And again, that is on the way here in the next few weeks that they are going to be finishing the construction on the other five theater rooms that haven't been upgraded as of yet. So setting up really brilliantly for the summer box office and for the summer movies, which, by the way, just giving a little teaser, that's going to be the topic of our next podcast episode coming up here in about a week or two. We're going to be getting into talking about the summer movie slate starting from Memorial Day all the way through Labor Day. We will get you the full rundown of what is coming this summer. I know I've got at least one movie circled that I'm definitely going to, but we'll have to take a look at the rest of the list and get ready to check out what else to catch this summer at the movies. Actual summer. not. I mean, Guardians 3 is kind of like the first summer movie, and that's coming out the first weekend in May. Summer starts earlier and earlier. One of these yes. years, it'll be like New Year's weekend. Well, summer box office begins. So Somebody's going to try to sell it that way. Yeah. <laughs> we'll go Memorial to Labor Day. That's summer. So that's what we'll be talking about next week. A couple of uh, news items to get to to start the show. The first one is the most immediate one. And Dave, that is the news regarding the writer's strike in Hollywood. This is huge news. First time that this has happened in 15 years with a major strike like this, which also was a writer's strike. That was back in 07 through 08. That went on for about three, four months or so that that one was was going on. Yeah, November through February of, of 
that year. So yeah, about three months total. We've got another writer strike that's off and running. And right now, television is the most immediately impacted, but movies will be as well. Well, this is one of those things that it's going to stretch out. Anything that is night to night to night, like say late night TV, and uh, that those are already immediately switching over to reruns. Saturday Night Live is a part of that as well. Um, but you know, things that are already done, they've got scripts done, they've got episodes filmed that are yet to come. But anything that is not currently completely done from a writing standpoint, from a script standpoint, screenplay standpoint, those will still get filmed. Anything that's not, that's going to be on hold. So, well, we've got an idea to develop this new show. All right, can't wait. Well, don't hold your breath because nobody's able to cross the picket line to write it, to develop it, and that the further out this goes, the bigger the impact you're going to feel. Now, a key difference between this strike and the one that happened previously that I mentioned earlier is that that strike was in the midst of the traditional television season, so a lot of shows got impacted. A couple of my favorite shows all time, The Office as well as Friday Night Lights, I go back and I watch those those shows, and very clearly, Office Season 4 cut off after they they were doing hour-long episodes that season that was a a change very short season that year Friday Night Lights they were midstream on season two cut off by the writer's strike as well lots of other shows impacted at that time in that way this time around with it being in late April into now early May that we that we have this happening a lot of shows are at the end of their quote-unquote traditional TV cycle, although that's changed now that streaming has come along and there's there's a lot more ways that people consume TV. So I'm curious just how much of an impact that'll have on these on these actual written-for-the-screen shows that are not on a week-to-week basis, like, like your evening talk shows and your comedy shows like you described. We'll, we'll see how so. long it extends. But then again, with the movies, too, it, it's going to be interesting to, to go what projects are going to be most impacted by this. It's it's um, it's not that we haven't known this is coming. It's not that they haven't uh, stocked up the pantry, so to speak, with written scripts that are done. But even then, you might get starting in front of the cameras and you realize you need to tweak something. You can't have a writer work on it with you. Uh, a good example, James Bond, Quantum of Solace. That wasn't a very good movie because the script was written to a point. Like, that's eh, good enough. James Bond himself, Daniel Craig, was helping to come up with rewrites for that because the writers, they were not going to cross the picket line. So right. it suffered. Um, but you also think about, well, we're coming to the end of the season. We'll be okay. That's when they air. You know, they've they're finished wrapping, shooting all the seasons for those that are traditional seasons. They're going to start maybe about July and start working on to the next season. So that's come where September, it gets significant. that's going to be a problem. But also coming up, you've got you also got to keep in mind the way that we're consuming media. You touch base on it. Streaming. How much are they getting residual writers from streaming rights? There's been a long, long, long history with very creative Hollywood math where people that create, that write, that whatever, they just now getting paid. But the big wig producers, they're taking bank no matter what, even if they're only really only a name on the on the thing and people that really do the work, sometimes a lot of them just left in the dust. And not only to mention the writers, at the end of June, the Directors Guild, their contract is about to come to an end. So could there be another one coming up here? This is not a new thing this is just the latest chapter of an ongoing book you know the hollywood and the producers and the establishment they want their money the people that are really kind of doing the work work the daily grind in the trenches whatever you want to call it pam yeah that's it so we'll see how long this extends that's the big question now is what kind of 
life is this going to have to it? Is this going to be an ongoing multiple months kind of thing like the last writer strike was? Or can they find a way to get this resolved now that it's getting the media attention, of course, with this actually getting off and underway? What's that going to do as far as getting this move forward? Because we saw this with the possible editor strike last year, which you and I did a full episode on. And there was so much media attention in the lead up to the possible strike that they ended up avoiding it. We've got one that's actually on our hands now. What's that going to look like for trying to get something done and changed? This is one of the reasons why reality-based TV, which does not have a script, uh, has become so much bigger because, well, we'll just do more reality stuff. Well, you can make arguments that some of the writing stuff isn't amazing either, but a lot of times you might get some writer that's got a really good idea and they'll pitch it, whether it gets picked up or not. But more often than not, they're given the assignment. You are tasked to come up with the 1,200th episode of Fast and Furious. Didn't we say all we needed to with the first 1,100 movies? No, we need more. You know, So it's just content, content, content. We've got money. We can squeeze one more drop out of this. And you've said everything creative you can, but if you don't have writers, you're not going to have much of an interesting product, and clearly I'm not a big fan of the reality-based stuff. Creativity is really enjoyable, whether it's writing or other aspects of movie or television making, which we'll get to later. We don't know how long this is going to go. We don't know what the impact is going to be. I think it's a solid two months, and maybe when this continues and comes up to the director's deadline, then maybe there will be some degree of panic. It remains to be seen. This... Who can make the call? Stay tuned. Our second news bit for today is kind of a follow-up on two episodes ago when we talked about Indiana Jones. And, of course, we discussed the past of the character and looked at the present and the future as well and talked about Harrison Ford and his place as playing Indiana Jones, of course. And a lot of the talk is is about, well, what's going to happen with Indiana Jones after this movie this summer, The Dial of Destiny? Well, Harrison Ford believes that this will be the final movie involving the Indiana Jones character. He said, in his opinion, this is going to be the last one where we see Indy on the big screen. Now, I brought this up on KZY, and I speculated. I was like, now, he may say that Lucasfilm and Disney in particular, they may have a completely different plan here for the Indiana Jones character based on how this movie goes this summer, because even though Harrison Ford has... With the exception, of course, the the TV show, Harrison Ford has been tied in exclusively with this character on the big screen. So making a change in that regard would be very significant. But he at least believes this is going to be the last one where Indy's on the big screen. Yet to be seen if that ends up being the, the truth or, of it or not, but that's where, how he thinks about it. Honestly, that might be a smart decision, but will that be the reality? I am not about to put money down on that. Um, no way. I, you know, this no is way. this is not the first time something like this has come up. You know, well, only Sean Connery can play James Bond, and we're about to get another one, our se- sixth, seventh, something like that. Um, not factoring in TV movies and so forth. Um, so, if 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 Hollywood sees money to be made, particularly for those in power, of course there's going to be more. And, you know, we'll get somebody else to play Harrison Ford. Well, we'll use de aging technique. Blah 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 blah. If they can find a way to do it and they'll make a buck, they're going to do it. Um, will they do it? Maybe good taste will provide. And, and it depends also. Lucasfilm is owned by Disney. If Disney wants to make money, they're gonna. You know, Back to the Future Four. We'd love to see one. Well, the makers that hold the rights, including Zemeckis and Spielberg. They are not going 
to do it. There will not be another one because those in charge are making an artistic decision. They're not going to do it. Video games, other things, that's another story, but it's not going to happen again. Indy on the big screen, if whoever the Disney chairman is thinks they can make some money and make their shareholders and get out of some sort of a financial hole, oh, we can use Indiana Jones, then all bets are off. Exactly. Yeah, stay tuned on that. All right, Dave, I want to give you a list of movies. I want you to listen to it and and figure out what all of these have in common. Gravity, Birdman, The Revenant, Things That Hover, Things That La La Land, Things That Maul, Blade Runner 2049, Things That Are Announced Incorrectly, Academy Awards, 1917, Mank, Dune, and All Quiet on the Western Front. What do all of these movies have in common? Um, those are some beautiful shows. I mean, even if the the plot is kind of eh, they're beautiful to watch. It's eye candy. You could mute the TV and be entertained. That's a good general answer. It wasn't specifically what I was looking for here, but that's a good general answer. Dave, those are the last two winners of the Academy Award for Best Cinematography. Going back to 2013 with Gravity And then most recently, uh, here for the 2022, of course, it was now this year with the show, but All Quiet on the Western Front. Those are the last 10 winners of the Academy Award for Best Cinematography. How many of those have you seen, by the way? Most. Uh, I haven't seen All Quiet yet. I almost started watching it the other night, um, but uh, did something else instead. But I've seen probably all but two, except for Western. I've seen five of them. Um, I've got Blade Runner 2049 on my list. I I still need to check that one out, but I've seen five of them. So, like you said, beautifully shot movies. And that's a big reason why, I mean, of course, when you're winning an award like that. And those those were not only beautifully shot, those were all regarded as excellent movies for the most part as well. I mean, really highly regarded movies, too, that did well at the Oscars and were well-received, but... That brings us into our topic for today, which is cinematography. And we've discussed aspects of cinematography on this show before, but cinematography itself and and the the concept of it, the idea, it's a lot more simple and basic, I think, than maybe people are like, wow, that's that's a big word. And, and they probably are like, well, there's got to be a really specific definition to this, right? Well, cinematography, I looked it up in the dictionary. It's simply the art of making motion pictures. That's as simple as it is. And you can take a lot of approaches to it as far as how does that look and what does that mean and what does that do. But but basically, it is, it's the visual. It's the visual and the art of how you put the visual onto the screen. I'll give you a, a different metaphor to go along with it. We've talked about... You know, movies are to be consumed, of course, but it's like sitting down to a meal. Uh, you can just shovel it in. Well, it's good. Or you can savor the flavors. Ooh, am I, am I tasting a little mint in this rip here? Ooh, it just really brings out the vanilla. Sounds like you're wine tasting. It's a little more in depth. It's a little more appreciating the nuance of it and what makes it happen. You probably are still appreciating it, but you're not really aware of the nuances of what you're appreciating. You, you like one thing over another thing. That was a good-looking movie, but how many of you walk out saying, that was a beautiful film. It's it's everything about what you just saw that is not what you heard. It's not about the plot or the story. It's about what you saw and the way that the visual is presented to you, and they're not all the same. No, and, and maybe some people are, are hearing that and going, this sounds over my head. Hmm. This sounds like it's just, it, it's way too hoity-toity, too fancy, like that, just over the top. Like, come on, we're here to be entertained. 
Well, the visual is part of the entertainment. Take another winner of Best Cinematography. Go back to 2010, Inception wins Best Cinematography with Wally Pfister doing the cinematography work in that. That movie is is so incredibly visually striking. And it and it was no wonder that it won the award that year for that because you have these spectacular visuals that you get to see that that are put on the screen with with the worlds and the dreams that the characters make their way through in the course of the movie. And when you have these different these different dreams and these different layers to it, you you have then these different visuals that come with it too and different settings and scenarios like a hotel that where they're basically going zero gravity within the midst of it and they film it as such and they they get the visuals as such in there or you have you have a a wintry base in one of the lower the deeper levels or you have limbo and the city that's in there too or you have the ability to then craft these dreams on the fly and you have buildings that are coming on top of buildings and it, they put all of that into a visual canvas with the movie and it, it ends up turning out to be spectacular that's where it it's not just like oh it's over my head as far as this is a beautiful movie it's it's visually stunning but it adds to what the movie is trying to accomplish. It's not just for the sake of, oh, oh, we're doing this just to be really artful. It's because it actually adds to what the movie is looking to do. Well, even more nuanced than that, to help distinguish, because that could be a deep movie to get into. Some people might watch the movie. This movie is over my head. But to help you distinguish it, you've got a dream within a dream within a dream within a dream. So you get the first layer where they're in the car, and it's just general shot with daylight. Nothing real special, just as is. Then you start going into the limbo. You start going into the city. It has sort of a bluish tone to it. You start talking about the battle in the hotel, much more warmer hues. Then you've got the the winter headquarters. It's much stark white, bright, cold. So just the visuals. And more landscape. And more landscape, but the snow and the white. And it's visually just enough on the subliminal to help you differentiate which layer of the dream are you watching. Whether you're watching uh, a space battle or a submarine battle where you're trapped inside some sort of a contraption. Maybe one is lit in a green, the other in a red or a blue. So when they're cutting between the different you know, ship commanders or whatever, you kind of have a better way subtly without even really paying attention to, to figure out which submarine are you looking at? Which spaceship are we looking at? How are things going? And that is part of the color scheme. That's part of the lighting scheme. That might be filters on the lens. That is a lot of different things that helps shape and sculpt what you're seeing. The director is involved in these decisions. The cinematographer, very involved in these decisions, not just how it's shot and the angles. You get a good director and a good cinematographer working together Man, you get some handcrafted mahogany Amish furniture of a movie shot that you just, it's, oh, savor it. When you look up cinematography, it's interesting to see the different aspects that people attach to it. I just looked in and was Googling it, and there was a five C's that I saw that, that you can attach to cinematography. And it was just one list, and it was camera angles, continuity, cutting close-ups and composition. I mean, that was just one. Another one was a film 101 of 21 cinematic technique terms and and definitions of like close-up, extreme close-up, long shot, those things. And then duties of a cinematographer, choosing a visual style, establishing a camera setup. What's the lighting going to be? Like you were talking about there, Dave. Location. What are you getting with the locations where you film? Um, and then just trying to work with the director to see what's the idea that you have for this film and how can the visuals play into the idea of this. 
you and I did an episode on film noir way back when. And film noir is a genre that takes cinematography and really ties it in strongly with what the film is looking to accomplish, with the general tenor and feel of the film. You're trying to work with shadows. You are trying to work with lighting in in very strong ways when you have film noir. And we talked about some modern examples, too, of the way that that's happened. But I, I like, too, how you described in the different dream components there within just the movie Inception of how there was even different coloration in there. And maybe people see that sometimes with movies where you have maybe a really stark kind of imagery with it. Like, I think of The Revenant, you know, one of those movies that was that I listed there for best cinematography. Incredibly well shot, but also very stark, too, with the cold landscapes that the movie takes place in. Or take a movie like La La Land. Very bright. That's more of a musical kind of feel that you're, that you're getting. And Technicolor kind of feel that you have with it. Like, that's one of the brightest movies I've seen in in recent years. Like, I was like, wow, I feel like I'm truly watching a movie from back in, like, the 50s and 60s with how bright the coloration is on this. Like, And the scene where where uh, the the main characters, Emma Stone and, and Ryan Gosling's characters, are are dancing together after they leave that party and they're looking out over Los Angeles and stuff. Beautiful color that they've got in, in that scene. It's not scene. quite the L.A. of today, is it? No, not quite. No. Not really. It's it's something a little bit different. But, but how do you make that look like a dreamscape, which in yeah. the movie at one time maybe it was, not really so much anymore. But that was the idea. Was was trying to capture that, and that's what cinematography cinematography takes all of those aspects and puts it in play. And again, camera angles. What kind of a- camera angles do you pick? You're not just doing like one camera kind of stuff. Like this is made for a live television audience. You're not you're not doing things like that. You're not filming it like like your weekly TV show. You're putting something. You're putting a little bit more feel and touch into it. And maybe it's with quick camera cuts. Maybe it's a lot of camera cuts. Or maybe. It's a lack of camera cuts, too. Maybe it's long camera cuts that, that are going on, like something like 1917, which I mentioned there, where you have continuous shots that are going on, on and on. Made to look like almost the whole movie. is only three I can remember off the top of my head, obvious parts where the camera clearly made a cut. But they didn't actually film the whole movie in one continuous take. It's meant to look like it, but using tricks to do it. So what's the point of that? Why would they do that? What was so big about the opening shot of Halloween, the original, to be one track shot? Uh, it makes an impression, and it, it can be exceptionally well done. Movie making is such a collaborative process, you know. So who makes these decisions? Ultimately, it comes down to the cinematographer, but really, it comes down to the director. The director's going to be making the artistic decisions. But if you've got a good collaborative team, you don't have one person trying to overrule the other. Take Spielberg, for example. I think he, in a way, is almost his own cinematographer, and he's worked with several different guys, some that stand out more than others. But Spielberg, even when he's just trying to figure out how to make this happen, he's got his own little viewfinder, and he might have a toy car, and he's trying to take an angle on the table and try to figure it out, and he does his own storyboards. Um, and he does a lot of that, but he works with some amazing cinematographers that can also bring in ideas. Whose decision was it with save, Saving Private Ryan to give the movie such a washed out look? And there was a it was a chemically done color process step that was intentionally left out so that you had, call it an olive drab washed out look to it it was just it wasn't the most colorful movie you've ever seen and that was by design it's a it's a drab 
washed out movie because that's kind of the idea. So was that Spielberg? Was that Spielberg and a cinematographer? Was it a mutual decision? By the way, same cinematographer, Janice yep. Kaminsky, yep. as the one who did Schindler's List, and both were Oscar winners. Yeah, and he's worked with a couple guys. Uh, Kaminsky most recently, especially on the more art house movies that Spielberg has done. Uh, he's worked with several. Uh, so if guys like uh, Sam Mendes, sometimes it's because uh, some amazing folks pass on, like Conrad Hall. He was working a lot with Mendes. So he's got to find somebody else, and he has absolutely done that with uh, Roger Deakins and others. Um, so things are moving forward. Um, but it's it's if you've got a good team and they're coming together, how we want to make this movie look. Hopefully they're working together and you don't just have a director saying, I don't know, you do it. That's where some of the best movies come from is it, it takes that – I mean, we've talked about the ingredients of a good movie before. We've talked about the importance of good writing, great direction at the at the front line. You need to have great acting to go with it too. But the visual the visual side is is such a it, – it's Huge. one that kind of takes your it, – it takes your breath away sometimes. And, yeah, it, it's such a big one because I think with movies in particular – you know, you see this on television, on the small screen more and more these days. There are there are amazing projects of, of TV shows. I, I mean, I think of Game of Thrones and the visuals that I've seen with that show and what they've done that are just spectacular. One of my favorite shows, Better Call Saul, amazing cinematography that they've done taking something on the small screen and putting a movie-like touch on it with the way that they film it and shoot it. And a lot of shows, I mean, Prestige Television is filled with that. You can find a lot of shows that that will do that visually with the way they shoot it, where it's like, I'm watching a movie, but it's a television show. Movies have the benefit of the large canvas of the big screen. And I think the best more directors... Time. Yeah, and more time. Yeah, and more time. I think the best directors and the best movies have found ways to be able to take that canvas and make the most of it. you know. And by the way, with more TV shows doing it, TV has the advantage of time that you talked about earlier. No, they, they, can, they don't have the time. they well, got to be fast. They, they can spread it out over multiple episodes, though. A movie has the benefit, though, of the big canvas of the big screen if you go see yeah. it in theaters. Yeah, but when you're shooting a show, and there are exceptions to this, there are some shows that are literally shot like, say, a 10-hour a ten movie, a 10-part show, 10-part season. They've got the time to do it, and they'll film it cinematically. That means more budget. It also needs more time because you need to set these things up. When you're doing, like, episodic, a CSI episode, point, shoot, we got it, okay, move, next thing, point, shoot, we got it, okay, that you're not going to you might get something but you're not going to get holy moly that's the difference that's yeah. a huge difference yeah. but cinematography for those of you that are like I still am not they're explaining this to me but I'm still not getting it put it to you this way could you film a show where there is really no cinematography basically getting the best actors the best script put it on a stage and just set the camera nail it down almost like you're shooting a high school drama. Could you get a really good show out of that where it's not about the visual per se, it's about the story? Absolutely you could. It's like going down to watch theater. No different. Could you get something that is so minimal on a, a spoken story where it's just almost visual? You might have actors and maybe they're giving a performance with their facial expressions and their body language, but not so much speech. And you've got dramatic lighting and you've got dramatic angles where the camera gets tilted. Can that tell a story almost as dynamically as a performance? It is almost the performance that is not credited except under the cinematography tab. It alone can tell a story. You can do the same with audio, but at that point you're more telling radio. 
than anything else. It is a huge component of a movie that sometimes is laying it on really thick. Other times it's minimalistic. It's it's another component to get you to feel a certain way, whether it's obvious or it's more subliminal. But you can tell when when those things have been really well thought out. You can tell oh, when yeah. there's been a lot of storyboarding that's gone on of, we don't just want to shoot these characters having a, a, a back-to-back, like a face-to-face interaction with each other in a room. We want to get certain angles that show, like maybe it's down below catching their face from this side, or we want to get the lighting set up in such a way that it's going to frame a certain mood that you're going to get out of this, or we want to put the camera in certain positions. You can tell when there's been a lot of thought that's put into that or not, and and it's it's really cool to see when it is well thought out because it just it adds such a layer of richness to the experience that you're getting with the movie. One thing I've done in in a few in recent weeks Dave is I it was actually around the Oscars going back even a, a couple of months now when they were going on I was like I want to find some of the the best cinematography winners and go back and watch some of those. And it was fun or to do that. Or at least the nominees. Yes, or even the nominees and so I went through the list and I was like I've seen a lot of these and it, and it's no wonder because they got such spectacular visuals out of it. But I found some others, too, and it, and it was cool because back in the 40s and 50s and even into the early 60s, the Cinematography Award was actually split up. They gave a black and white one, and they gave a color one. They differentiated it a little bit since Hollywood was still was still doing a lot of movies that were in both camps at that time. So it was cool to see, all right, if I want more of a Technicolor kind of feel here or a movie that really took advantage of color, in that way, I'll go that route. If I want to go to one that was more black and white, that especially a lot of those film noirs, then you could go that route too. And it, it was neat to see how at that time in Hollywood, there was that divide of, as far as you can go either way with it and be really, really creative with it too. And that how how sometimes color was really useful for that, but sometimes it was better to go the black and white route. Sometimes it worked both ways. I mean, think about The Wizard of Oz where both were used to good effect. Um, when she got to Oz, she's wearing black and white clothing as she steps out, and it's all color. You know, they couldn't really fake it that way, but you could fake it with the color of the dress. Then once she steps out, cut to the next shot, now the dress is, I think it was like blue and white checkered, wasn't it? So she's stepping out of the black and white into the color, and the way that that was used, and then back to the black and white at the end. And there's been other examples. I think a lot about uh, Pleasantville, if you saw that. What a, what a well-shot movie it was, and it definitely deals with black and white and color, and that itself pulls you into the story that that is stuck in its conformity is black and white. Those things that kind of break out, and as the movie goes forward, it's more black and white with maybe somebody with red lips, but they're everything else black and white. And by the end of the movie, everything is color except maybe a black and white thing here or there. And the the special effects, and it really was special effects, to find a way to make that happen, it's beautifully, and the way that it tells the story, whether subliminally or overtly, like uh, Pleasantville, Wow. Some movies I want to watch again, not because I think it's a fabulous movie, but because it's so beautifully done. Yeah, and you can use it to take advantage of things like landscape, and that's where location is so huge. Some of these locations that these that these movies have been filmed in are incredible. You know, you watch the movie Shane, for instance, and you go into the the Old West and you go you go at the base of the Tetons, basically, with where that's taking place and you and you can take advantage then of of large cast numbers then with some with just 
the idea of how you take advantage of your location, how you take advantage of how you want to try to film it and use the camera, you can do some really cool stuff with that. And to to get the kind of picture and the kind of vision that you have in mind put out there on, again, that big canvas. And it's fun to see it on the big canvas. You know, it, as we get into movies, even just me, myself, and my journey – uh, learning to appreciate things the more I get into it. It's not just cool that, wow, that was a really cool explosion or whatever. The way that it gets into and this is a movie that occasionally I've brought up for one reason or another during the course of the show, but it is one of my favorite movies. And one of the things I like about it is the cinematography. I talked about the movie Sneakers. It's a good all-star cast. Robert Redford is front and center. But the way that movie was shot, uh, I had to look it up just to kind of remind myself, John Lindley was the guy that shot that movie who also did Pleasantville, who also did Field of Dreams. He knew how, he's not one of those celebrated cinematographers, but the work that he does, it's gorgeous. And the way that the camera moves and the way that that blends into the next shot, all that stuff has to be figured out and planned out in advance. Okay, I'm going to have the camera move this way over a table so that when the next shot comes, the camera's pivoting and watching the car screech by or whatever. So when you put it all together and you edit it together, it's got a flow to it that it goes together. You don't just fix that in the editing room. You need you got to figure that out. You have to plan that so that when you shoot it, first unit, second unit, they know what is the plan here. So when it gets put together, it works. It tells a story. It has a flow to it. Um, and those are some beautifully shot movies. The lighting scheme of it, the way the cameras were going, uh, the angles, whether it was made to look like it was a security camera set up in a hallway and it's at that weird, obscure angle, kind of generic, but also kind of skewed, uh, to really warm, composited shots. Um yeah, that's, it, those were one of those things that I just loved the way that movie was shot, and it opened up my level of appreciation a little bit more. I might not like the movie, but now I'm looking more at the craftsmanship of just the movie itself and starting to appreciate the parts more than just the whole. So let's talk about some top cinematographer names. You made a big list here, and we can go through uh, this list and some of the movies sure. that these people have done. These might be some familiar names it might give people some ideas on, hey, I want to look up movies that this person has worked on. If you have, if you listen to some of the movies that are connected with this cinematographer and you go, that was a visually spectacular movie, maybe you should consider some other movies that this person has done or worked on because if it was their eye on that camera and if it was their eye going... This is how we're going to put this together. No guarantees because it also comes down to who's directing too yep, and what's yep. the vision that this person is giving, being given the chance to put into practice. Well, one of the, it's worth taking in. One of the first ones we can give you is it's uh, it's got to be a good collaboration. I haven't gone a deep dive onto this one, but i got to think it is. Michael Mann is a director, uh, very well known for Miami Vice. He's done a lot of other things. And he was very much a visual director. And he would make the settings, in the case of, say, Miami Vice, Miami Florida, which is a very bright, vibrant, colored city anyway, and he made that almost as much a character as Don Johnson or Tubbs or anybody else. It was a character in its own right. So he did that movie uh, Collateral with uh, Tom Cruise as the assassin and Jamie Foxx as the cab driver, and it's in L.A., 
in the middle of the night as this cab driver is unknowingly driving around this assassin. It's a good movie, but it is beautifully shot when it's warm and beautiful, when it's dark and cold. And he is made, in this case, Los Angeles, where the movie was shot, as just as much a character as anybody else in that movie, as he wants the Tom character crew character to be as bland as possible. In fact, to the point where he had Tom Cruise in real life dress up as a UPS guy to go around and be as unrecognizable as possible. Tom Cruise, I want you to get that vibe and put that into the movie while making the city around him as vibrant and as colorful and stand outish as this person who's just trying to blend in almost to a shadow grays and whites, almost monochromatic is the character. Tom Cruise with white hair and a gray suit, and he's a white guy, and he just blends in. And then you got this color. That was uh, Dion Beebe is the name of the uh, cinematographer. He and Michael Mann together. Wow, that's a beautiful movie. Whether you like the story, whether you like the cast, irrelevant. Just put it on mute. Is it telling a story? He is a multiple Academy Award winner. Yeah. And by the way, You want to know what his next project is? Hmm. The Little Mermaid. Hmm. He's actually the cinematographer for The Little Mermaid. That one I I missed. Coming soon. So, yeah, you you had listed a couple there for him. But, yeah, I just was looking at the list for him, and I was like, hey, he's got one coming up. So something to perhaps bookmark and keep in mind. Now, the next one you put on the list, this is one of the big names. I just went alphabetical by last names. You went alphabetical. But big. This is a big name, one of my favorite cinematographers, and that's Roger Deakins, who's done some amazing work over the last three decades. Yeah, he's gotten in with uh, the Coen brothers. Uh, Very recently, he's getting in with Sam Mendes. I think he is the new Conrad Hall in a lot of ways, and we'll give Conrad a little love here, but we haven't got to the H yet. Roger Deakins has been on the way up for a long time. Um, One of the things I really like, he got going in the early uh, 90s where he really started poking out with some big uh, announcements. He'd done some stuff earlier to that, but it's one of those shows we've talked about so much on this show, The Shawshank Redemption. Not only is it an amazing movie, that movie is so well shot. I mean, it is just gorgeous from the shot of of uh, Andy Dufresne once he's made his way through in the rain and you got that famous shot where he's got his arms out I'm free basically and the mo- camera's pulling up there's some great visuals of the prison oh, yeah. too early in the movie when you're coming in and swooping in on the prison like some great overheads yeah. oh yeah you finally realize the tunnel and the camera's pulling down the tunnel as everyone's putting their face into the tunnel what the way that is shot the way that that whole movie is shot there's not one shot in the entire movie where there wasn't thought given as to what you want it to be there are some shots where it is stark and as cold as anything you've ever seen and then the very next shot it is warm and inviting and it's almost a place you might want to spend time wait a minute isn't this a federal prison you know it's it's the way that it is and it's the way they want you to feel this is part of that hollywood magic might make you feel sympathetic toward a non-sympathetic character and those are some of the ways or situations it feels like a 90s movie in so many ways, uh, the Shawshank yeah. Redemption was. I don't know what it is about it, but it, it has that feel, and that includes the visual, too. And I didn't realize that Deacons has worked so much with the Coen brothers. Twelve collaborations yeah. total that he's done with the Coens. You know, you watch any Coen brothers movie, they're clearly crafted, and not just from a script standpoint. Everyone remembers a Coen brothers because of the dialogue and the writing, but you see the way that they're framed and they're shot. One of my personal favorites that Roger Deakins did was Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Which is, I mean, it's a bizarre movie in a lot of ways. It is a retelling in a quote-unquote modern way from Depression-era Deep South 1930s of Homer's Odyssey. It's just bizarre the way that it's put 
put together, but the way that it is shot, it's almost monochromatic, made to look like the entire movie is in like a sepia tone, and it works. It really works. It is uh, bluegrass music and everything put together, but just we're talking cinematography, the visuals of it, it's almost like a black and white movie, but done in sepia tone, and the way the lighting works, it's bright, it's dark, it's warm, it's cold, it is... It's unique is the best way I can think of. And again, he's had a lot of collaborations with Sam Mendes, which you mentioned. It started with Jarhead, and then it went on to Revolutionary Road, and then Skyfall, very notable one there. And then, of course, 1917, which he won his second Second Academy Award for, and then uh, Empire Empire of Light most recently. But then a lot of other ones uh, that he's done. um, Sicario, back in the mid-2010s, he did that one. Blade Runner 2049, incredible visuals there. That was actually his first Academy Award that he won, even with all the tremendous movies he's done. No Country for Old Men, of course, previously going back to Big Lebowski, and yet that was his first one there, Blade Runner 2049, that he won an Academy Award for his work in. But you go through this list, True Grit, of course, too. Um, even Rango did Rango there too, uh, working on an uh, on an animated film there. But um, you don't think about cinematography when you think animation, but oh yeah, yeah, it's it's true. So great list, phenomenal list when you go through Roger Deakins' career and see all that he's done and and the amazing projects that that have had his name attached to it. You know, I, I got to give a special shout out uh, to Skyfall all around. Uh, bringing Sam Mendes in, who's such an accomplished dramatic actor or not actor director, yep. and uh, American Beauty, and and uh, uh, oh, I'm getting. Of course, he's one of my favorite directors, and I'm boffing it right now. Um, but now you get him to tackle something like James Bond and the way that it was done, specifically coming off of Casino Royale, which was a huge introduction for the character, a drop off in in Quantum of Solace, but this was. Maybe possibly the best Bond movie of all time. And this it's is my favorite. I think it might be mine too. It might be my best favorite Bond too. This movie was so crafted so beautifully. As much as I like James Bond and all the adventures that he's been on, and they've been down some winding, interesting, sometimes campy roads. This was the first Bond movie I've ever seen that was truly, truly, truly crafted it nothing happened on screen by accident uh the acting was great the directing was great the music was great with thomas newman but the cinematography and one of the best scenes there was what they call it the jellyfish scene where you're in uh bangkok and it's james bond and an assassin fighting in silhouette oh my god behind the you know, digital advertisement that's on the wall it is a violent scene, but it is so beautifully done. You can't really tell exactly what's happening, but it doesn't matter. It's Your jaw just drops. You're just, wow. That is cinematography. That was Roger Deakins on Skyfall, and that's just one of many, many versions. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that scene up because I also loved when he and M are driving to Scotland yeah. and they stop and, and they're just kind of taking in the quiet of that moment. You go from the fight there that you described earlier to the quiet of that moment, two different visuals, two striking visuals. I mean, the whole movie is filled with them. Just spectacular visuals. Bond on the top of the roof there at the end of the movie, taking in his beloved London and England and that that they've gotten the job done, but at cost. Well, think and of, uh, just, uh, it's just amazing visuals. Think about the Bond franchise as a whole. Can you tell me any Bond movie... Maybe uh, maybe uh, Spectre a little bit because a new bar had been set by Skyfall. Can you tell me anything that had happened in a Bond movie at all that just was a, a moment 
because it was crafted so well. Think about, say, like uh, The Spy Who Loved Me, where he goes off the side of the hills, and he's skiing, and the flag opens up, and it's the Union Jack parachute. What a cool moment. But it was it looked like it was shot from a mountaintop. You know, Granted, it was the mid-'70s. You were limited. There weren't drones. But how well better could that have been really crafted had they done it? They almost barely didn't get him in shot before he disappeared behind the mountain. They just kind of, get a camera, shoot, we'll go. Yeah. That wouldn't have happened had they had a scene like that with Roger Deakins and Skyfall. But anyway. One name that is becoming more and more prominent in recent years is the next guy on the list, Greg Frazier. Yeah, this is a guy that he got tapped to do the most recent The Batman movie, and that is a beautifully shot movie. Wow. For those yeah. of you that are still, you know, I'm, I'm listening to you guys talking about the cinematography, I get it. All right, think about it like this. Do you guys remember watching the behind-the-scenes video, whether it was on your DVD or Entertainment Tonight or whatever, and here's that explosion on the highway, and they had the Batmobile drive through it, and you're watching it oh, from, from the behind-the-scenes view. Here we are on set, and it's just, okay, action, and the truck drives right through the flames, and cut. Okay, well, you saw the visual. Was it moving, or is it just kind of, you know, cold and calculated and mechanical? Now you see the exact same thing. Through a lens that has been thought up. What lens should it be? At what angle should it be? Forget sound effects. We're talking the TV is muted and you see this explosion of a wall of flames and this monster of a vehicle that actually gives you dread bursts through this thing like a panther coming at its prey. The same face that the penguin made in his upside down car. Yeah. That is cinematography. That upside down shot of Batman walking toward the penguin's car that was that coupled with the music in the trailer that was part of what turned my attention more on that movie where previously i had just kind of not really been all that excited about the movie i was like okay they're they're doing it again here with a new version of batman but then i watched that trailer i think it was the second time i watched that trailer and when i saw that visual with the music coupled with it there was something that inside of me that just went I want to see this movie way more now. There's something about this that feels like it's got a lot of attention to detail to it. And then I went and saw the movie, and it was outstanding, and and I loved it. I've never had a fear of Batman, like the way that criminals are meant to fear Batman. And I've seen him in dark movies, Dark Knight, which is all or uh, the first Batman Begins, which is all about fear was the theme. But I never was afraid of him until that scene in The Batman, I actually felt a twinge. I, I'm kind of afraid of this guy, just yeah. a little bit. Yeah. So, And that's just one. Um, he's done the, the first Dune remake movie. Which and, won him an Oscar yeah. as well. He's doing the second one, too. They just put yes. the poster out. Star Wars Rogue One, let me give you an idea on that one. I mean, the Death Star is this menacing planet-destroying thing. We've seen it before, but it never looked menacing, ever, until you start seeing the ways that it is unveiled and pulled out oh, of shadow man. and beautiful all it is is a globe that's all it is into the planet as well like the visuals there are haunting and and darth vader darth vader started to become the boogeyman again like (laughs) seriously the way that he shot vader in that last scene at the end of the movie oh my gosh so chilling oh so good. And Zero Dark Thirty, you, you marked that one down as yeah. well. That was another one incredibly well shot. Too. And, you know, he, some of what he does, he really gives scope and size. 
you really feel the scope of that. And Zero Dark Thirty, it can be a tricky movie to see, but it's done beautifully. So there you go. Conrad Hall, yeah. got to show him some love. I think in a lot of ways he was the precursor to Roger Deakins. And he goes back. I mean, he shot Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Cool Hand Luke, and those are beautifully shot movies, even for the way they were making movies back in the 60s. Clearly, these stood above and beyond, and he never really slowed down. He got in with Sam Mendes and artfully crafted movies, American Beauty, and of course, I couldn't remember it earlier. Road to Perdition. That was the that one. was the yeah. one. That is a beautifully shot movie. And again, those sequences, there's the bank robbery sequence where you had to figure out in advance how you're going to make this happen, so that when it's finally assembled, everything is moving from left to right on your screen and so that it's you're watching the the chase you're watching the escape and it just keeps going from one scene to the next that doesn't happen by accident all of that needs to be planned in the lighting the scope the camera movements because you're shooting all these things probably months apart but it has to come together in the editing room that's where you get a director and you get an editor and you get a cinematographer like conrad hall to make it happen um the lighting and to make things look dark and to make things look cold and warm um at times it's he was one of the best he's no longer with us but boy his work is going to stand the test of time Hoyt Van Hoytema is becoming a favorite of mine because he and Christopher Nolan have been teaming up a lot on recent movies Interstellar Dunkirk Tenet and coming this summer he is on Oppenheimer as well and they've been doing a lot of work with IMAX and IMAX cameras in black and white for Oppenheimer, which is, I think, a first as well. I think so you're right. He's he's got a great eye for it too. And um, Dunkirk was was amazingly shot with what he did there. But he also worked with Sam Mendes on Spectre yep. and did some work there. Um, he worked with Jordan Peele on Nope, which had I only saw the trailer for Nope, but had some big visuals that they were doing there. He did Ad Astra as well. He's been on some huge projects. Her with Spike Jones, which you wrote down here. Not a great movie, but beautifully shot. Yeah, so he's um, even going back to The Fighter back in 2010, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. This guy is attached to some huge projects that have all been excellent visually. You know, I gotta. I would love to almost be a fly on the wall when there is pre-production on these movies where you get the director and the cinematographer and others in a room. How does this start? I mean, you must have the director. I've got an idea of this kind of feel and this kind of vibe. Maybe it starts with that. And the cinematographer, you know, I think we could touch and such and so and so and do. And sometimes maybe it works the other way. I think Spielberg is one of those guys. He's clearly visual in and of himself. And I think that uh, his cinematographer is almost napalm to his fire to make it burn brighter and bigger. Because I think they work so well together that way. It's so visual. But I also think that there's directors that maybe they need a little help cinematographer. They can tell a good story, but maybe their visual isn't their forte. So this is where a great cinematographer, you know what we could do, could really come in. Well, we already gave him a shout-out, but Janice Kaminsky, who's yep. been the right-hand man for Steven Spielberg on so many of his movies, is next here on the list, and he's got an incredible array of films that he's done. Yeah, uh, Schindler's List, black and white, but so well done and so well framed. And even there is that moment that just it grabs everybody. In fact, I'm feeling a twinge in my sinuses as I bring it up, the little girl in the red coat. I mean, that's cinematography. That is, if you know the movie, you know the scene, and you're just getting a view of just one person, just one person, just, you know, being brought into an execution concentration camp, and you kind of forget about it until later you see this big mountain pile of dead bodies, 
and you can see just a little bit of red, and it's not blood, it's the little girl's coat. Not even this girl could be spared. It was just one way artistically to point out just a, a spotlight, a red spotlight, of just one of many, many, many lives lost during the Holocaust. And that is also cinematography. It is amazing, looking at his full list, the director column, almost exclusively Steven Spielberg. He's done some other stuff with with a few other directors here and there, but he's... He is Spielberg's guy. I mean, he From was like with the him. the 90s on, yeah. Yeah, he was with him for the Fablemans, for West Side Story as well. I mean, he's been, they've been pretty much attached to the hip there, the the two of them together. And it's. He's it's, his visual John Williams. I, I guess he is, really. I, that's that's a good way to put it. So. Yeah. And, and of course, Saving Private Ryan, that's a big one that comes up. Absolutely. Um, Spielberg, something happened to him in the 90s with, with uh, Saving Private Ryan, part of that, and Schindler's List as well. Um, it was less fun and imaginative and much more uh, something with weight. Put, well, they all have weight, but it's all – it took a serious turn, and I think that uh, Kaminsky is a part of that as well. He's showing it in a much more adult, responsible way. I think maybe that's where he was less of a kid and more of an adult. That was his conversion. And what, the various different cinematographers he'd work with, it's almost exclusively Kaminsky from that moment on. Mexican cinematographer Emmanuel Lubezki was incredibly prolific when it came to winning awards in the mid-2010s, he won quite a few for for his work. Gravity, Birdman, The Revenant, all Academy Award victories for cinematography, all brilliantly shot. And The Revenant, you almost need to pull that one out in particular. There's no lights on that movie whatsoever at all. Everything is either from the sun or fire. That is it. There is no lighting crew, not for close-up, not for anything. It was completely shot. Oh, the way they filmed that movie was crazy. The stories I've heard about that and the lengths that they went to to make that happen, that's great that you pointed that out, That is so rare. Tell me another movie that wasn't shot by kids in the front yard. That's it. There is you're going to have some kind of light hidden somewhere. Not on this movie. Maybe maybe they pulled out their iPhone to read the script. Okay, all lights out and whatever. Even the, Blair Witch, they're holding flashlights up yeah, to film some of those. Yeah, <laughs> it just it didn't exist. And I don't mean they pretended to fake the sun or fake the firelight. It was actual firelight, actual sunlight. That's it. I don't think they even had. Uh, you'll get a, a splashboard. You'll get a piece of white cardboard or whatever to bounce the light. I don't think they even did that. I think it was shot au naturel, and it was gorgeous, and I do believe he won the Oscar for that. By the way, yes, he did. By the way, he jumped into Deacon's collaborations with the Coens and did Burn After Reading in 2008. I just realized that. I was like, huh, he got to to work with them there. Most recently, he worked on Amsterdam, did that one with with David O. Russell directing um, this past year or so. He's got, I mean, he's done some amazing projects, especially this past decade. Um, seemed like every, well, especially with Alfonso. Uh, oh, uh, Curon. Curon, yeah. Um, working with him there on Gravity and then um, Inaritu uh, there for the other two when, when they uh, won the awards there as well. Um, next up, Wally Pfister. Another, a guy who worked with Nolan quite a bit there. The Dark Knight trilogy, Inception, but more projects beyond just working with Nolan, too. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, I just watched Moneyball the other night that he did. And I didn't realize he did Moneyball. Yeah, I, I knew that he did it, but there's something 
beautifully simplistic about Moneyball, the way that it is done and the way that it is shot. I mean, it's baseball. And you think about just about every baseball movie, they're all done lush and warm. And Moneyball just isn't. It's almost it's almost data-like. It's, it's binary. It's black and white. That's it. But the way that it is done, it's something, it's an, almost an X factor. I can't define exactly and be really specific. Why is it beautiful? I, I don't know if I can, but it is. You just sort of watch it and you just, I can't define what makes the Mona Lisa smile so interesting, but it is. It just pulls you in. That's Wally Fister with Moneyball, and that's just Moneyball alone. By the way, he is officially retired from cinematography I did work not as know well. That. He transitioned into director work and he has said that he has that he is leaving his cinematography behind and he wants to focus on doing more directorial stuff but he worked with Nolan a lot, Memento. He he did the work on The Prestige, Insomnia, of course the Dark Knight trilogy, Inception which won him the Academy Award that I was talking about earlier. But yeah, Moneyball, Dark Knight Rises and Marley, those were his final 3 movies that he did. Um, in yeah, 2011 through 2012, and then that was it as far as cinematography work. He also did the Italian Job remake back in 2003, so he had he had some really good ones that he did, but uh, no more in terms of the cinematography work. But you know, if Spielberg is such a visual director, if Wally Fister is going to get more into directoral, now you've got another great visual director when he teams up with whatever cinematographer he does, and Fister clearly knows his work. I think of how beautiful those movies are going to be. You get two experts that know the visual. So long as he's got good directing chops, we got. I'm looking forward to what could be. All right, we've got Tarantino's right hand man next. And by the way, he just did the cinematography work for a movie that's in theaters now, and that's Air, which was directed by Ben Affleck, yeah. talking about Michael Jordan and getting connected with Nike. And that is Robert Richardson. He perfected a shot also that Tarantino has used. But also uh, others have used. Uh, it's I call it the washout shot. I don't know if it's got a true shot, but it's almost like what you would imagine if you're getting the third degree and you're in the police station and the big bright light is on you and everything else it just fades out into darkness and into the shadow and it's almost overexposed. So it's really harsh, bright white light. You see it in movies like Casino that he did. You see it in JFK, Oliver Stone, um, and those washout shots there for a dramatic effect. But boy, do they tell a story. Those are one of my when used properly and not overly done, boy, they're stark, and they jump out at you, and that's him. That's his big thing. And he also worked on A Few Good Men, yeah. Shutter Island, did some work in there, too, speaking of a, of a certain the visual stark light, kind of feeling, yeah. the stark light, good grief. And not all, but most of Tarantino's work, particularly the most recent ones, one at Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Hateful Eight, uh, Inglorious Bastards, and those... Those are all stories that are kind of told a little over the top in a way. Bastards in particular is told over the top, and it's shown in an over-the-top way, and it works. Um, so where you get Tarantino's movies that are so well-known for the writing, the dialogue, and so forth, you almost forget about how beautifully, particularly the more recent ones, are shot. Maybe not so much Pulp Fiction, although it's got its moments, but, um, wow, I mean, I think Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, not only does the audio and the radio stations really bring you back, it's told and shot in such a dramatic way that it, it wow, it just works. And you kind of forget about those parts. Yeah, but clearly a guy who knew how to be able to bring Tarantino's visions with those movies visually. to life then, visually. All right, final name here, Gordon Willis. 
He's been around, uh, and his best work is back in the day. It's not so much modern. i got to look up and see if he's still working. I don't think he is, but the work no, his, he did. His last movie was back in, in 1997. Actually, he passed away in 2014. Yeah, so, so he's, he's not around, but his work stands for itself. All the President's Men, you get those dramatic shots uh, in the parking garage and everything else where you go from absolute darkness where you've got uh, uh, Woodward talking with Deep Throat in the parking garage, beautifully shot, and almost a similarity but much more in the light, almost telling its own story in the newsroom, almost with a vanishing point to it. The Godfather trilogy, all of them, and they're beautifully shot, the almost sepia tone, and uh, as much as there is so much more that is being said and so much more that is not being said, whether it's there's an orange in every scene, that is just some of the craftsmanship that went into it and the way that it is shot from sepia tone, working with Woody Allen, Manhattan, Annie Hall. He worked on eight Woody Allen movies. Yeah. yeah. And they were as as well known for the dialogue and the characterizations. And then you think about the way that those things are shot and the way that they come together. And it's not just say, I do renounce him. And the editing cuts to make that happen. It's the way that they're dramatically shown and dramatically done. Uh, sepia tone and non. It's just... It, it just works. They're so beautifully shot. Just imagine that shot of you've got Michael in the boathouse, and in the distance you could see that boat in the distance with his son, and you know he's not going to make it through the day. It is, it's a chilling, telling tale that is clearly told, I don't care, told by a cinematographer. It is chillingly done. So some of Gordon Willis's work, obviously it's now in the past, but boy, it has been, you could see its influence on shows told since and even still. I do love that you put that list together, Dave, and I appreciate that you did that for our discussion today because, again, like I said off the start, hopefully this is an idea for people to look for visually striking movies, and maybe they got some ideas hearing some of these cinematographers' names, and maybe it helps explain to some of these great directors we've talked about in the past, these great movies that we've talked about in the past. This is an incredibly large part of why those movies have resonated so well have been so well received and and are so good to take in because the visual plays such a key part in it and we go through this list i mean the those movies that are mentioned there it's like yeah it makes total sense it's no wonder because they they have been clearly well thought out and that it's not just visual for visual sake it's not just we put the camera on it it's one shot and we move on it's No, they were clearly thinking, we need to be out there at this time. We need to be out there at this specific time, and it's it's go time. We're filming now because this is what we're looking for here. You mentioned it with The Revenant. Like, I'm sure there was a great deal of, we've got to go at this specific time and shoot now because this is what we're looking for as far as the kind of weather we have, the lighting that we have. This is this is what's going to be the ticket. People talk about Hollywood magic, and you got to realize what a character cinematographer is and how it makes that magic work, particularly with uh, forcing you really to feel something that the director and the, tree and the team want you to feel. Real quick example, and we'll move on, Conrad Hall in American Beauty. You've got Lester Burnham. He's being talked down to by his boss. He's sitting in an oversized chair. He almost looks like a kid, and the camera angle is down. You know who has the leverage in this conversation. Later in the movie, things have happened, and the roles are switched. Now he's talking to his boss in an oversized chair, looking down at the boss, looking up at Lester Burnham. Who's got the leverage now? That is all told subtly in a psychological way that is done entirely by the cinematography to make you feel a particular vantage point. You're going to feel what they want you to feel. Part of that Hollywood magic as much as any CGI.
Remember in The Aviator, which, by the way, Robert Richardson did yep. the cinematography for, when Howard Hughes is making that movie, and he's trying to get a cloud to be created. <laughs> like, he's trying to get enough moisture in the air to have a cloud to be able to be up there so they can have some clouds and be able to more fully capture in in the cameras what's going on with the dogfight and with those uh, with those airplanes up there in the air. I just I just thought of that there with trying to make it all work in order to be able to properly film it. Even at that point, you could just CGI in some clouds, no problem. But you got <laughs> not that back in, not back in the twenties, not and back 30s then, nope. like them, nope. not not back then. Not unless you're throwing <laughs> cotton balls in the air. Yeah. Next time you watch a show, don't just watch it, see it. That's right. Well, you already are anyway, but you can see it a little bit deeper. So. Look closer. Look deeper. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks is sponsored by the Bemidji Theater, which is on Highway 2 just down from the airport. Boy, talk about taking in the visual experience of a movie. You sure get to do that when you're at the Bemidji Theater. So until next time, I'm Joel Hoover. I'm Dave Brooks. And we will see you at the movies.